I want you to turn with me to you in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles today. I'm always reading from the New King James, unless otherwise indicated. And we'll start with Judges chapter 8, and we're going to read verse number, let me see, we'll start down with uh, verse number 18. We'll just read a few verses. To summarize the verses prior to the 18th verse in this chapter, Judges chapter 8, uh, Gideon has uh, defended uh, the people with his 300 men against the invading army, and they have uh, slaughtered quite a few of them, and they are rounding up the survivors and the stragglers. They have chased down two invading kings named Zeba and Zamuna, and now they have captured these two kings, and now they are interrogating them prior to their execution. This is what's happening in Judges chapter 8. So Gideon is talking to them in verse 18, and he says to these two kings, he says, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said in verse 19, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live... I would not kill you. And he said to Jethro, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. So Ziba and Zamuna said, Rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed them, and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. God all through the scriptures, finds many unique ways to pass on truth to the reader. Sometimes he uses godly people, sometimes he uses ungodly people. In this particular case, he's using two condemned ungodly kings to convey a truth to us thousands of years later, something that Pastor Larry addressed a few minutes ago, and something we need to know now more than ever in the day in which we live. That is the fact that when we were born again, when we accepted Jesus, everything changed in our life from God's perspective. Unfortunately, when people accept Jesus from their perspective, many times things never change. And we need to come to a place where we recognize and understand something here. In verse number 21, these two kings make this statement to Gideon. They say to him, rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, not as a man shall be someday, but as a man is, so is his strength. In other words, that truth transcends the moment by which those statements were given. When you accepted Jesus, the Holy Spirit came and took up residence inside of you. 1 John 4, 4 tells us that greater is he in us than he that is in the world, and the he that is in the world is the devil. And we need to recognize and understand that even though we are strong in Christ, if you don't know it, and if you don't live in the light of it, that strength cannot be applied and used effectively against the enemies of your soul. I work in the Philippines. There's, there's devil worship, there's devil possession, there's voodoo, there's witchcraft, there's Muslim rebels, there's communist rebels, and they all show up at your crusade at the same time. You know, you better know some things about who you are. When I got over there for the first time years and years and years ago, if you ever heard this testimony, I left the United States with $20 in my pocket and a one-way ticket and no way back in September of 1980. So this past September was 36 years. So we've seen God do some great things. But I found out really quick 
that I can no longer cruise on another man's revelation. I cannot, I cannot ride piggyback on someone else's knowledge of the word. I needed to know who I was in Christ because there was no more Christian bookstore on the corner. There was no more women's meeting, outreach service, Bible study, or any of this. I was in the jungles with all these wild and crazy people, and I needed to find out who I was. And so the things I'm teaching and sharing with you are not things I read in somebody's book. These are things I had to learn in the field on the job for Jesus. So this is really, you know, for me, uh, just uh, a wonderful opportunity to pass on to you the things that were passed on to me years and years ago, the things that have sustained us for 36 years. We've had people shoot at us when we're preaching, bullets flying by. We've had people jump up on the stage, Muslim imams trying to knife me in the middle of my message. I guess they didn't receive. What do you think? Just a little bit of resistance I'm sensing there. Point being, we've, we've been some places, we've done some things, and we've been shot at along the way, but we're still standing, and we'll finish the race that we've been assigned to run, because as a man is, or as a woman is in Christ, so is his strength. You are already there, even if you don't know you're there. And you need to know you're there, because you're going to need to know some things in these last days. The days of Sunday morning Christianity are long gone. You better know some things about who Jesus is in your life with what's coming down the road to Jesus, Terry. So having said that, what I want to do is talk about uh, this business of spiritual strength. As a man is, so is his strength. As you are, so is your strength. You need to know this so that you can rise to the level of your own potential. It's been my experience around the world where I travel, lots of Christians love God with all their heart, but they've never risen to their own potential. They are allowing a defeated foe to push them around and torment them at every turn. That is a tragedy and a slap in the face to God. When Jesus died on the cross and did all of that to give us the ability to rise above all of this, and instead of being the tormented, we become the tormentor. Amen. I want you to turn with me to 1 Chronicles 28.10. 1 Chronicles 28 and 10. And we're going to look at something here. Thank you, Jesus. First Chronicles 28 and verse 10 is a statement, once again, from the Word of God. This is a conversation between David and Solomon, his son. David is about to depart and pass the baton to Solomon to run the nation of Israel. So he's talking to his son about what he needs to do and how he needs to think and all of this. So um, let's begin in the ninth verse. Let's back up one verse. This is First uh, Chronicles 28 and verse 9. We'll start there, okay? Here's what David told Solomon and what the Holy Spirit's telling us, okay? As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him... He will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Verse 10. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. In 36 years of working overseas, there are certain verses that resonate with me, and I keep coming back to them because of the simple truths they reveal. And this verse, verse 10, is one of them for me. God has ordained and chosen and commissioned us to build something in his name. Now, in those days, Solomon was being commissioned to actually build a building, the temple, the sanctuary. That was his assignment. David was not told to, you know, God basically backed up and said, you're not qualified 
to build me my temple. You're a man of much bloodshed and much war, and so I don't want you building my temple. I'll let your son do it. So basically, Solomon was given the responsibility of building the temple of the Lord. That was his assignment. Today, in the New Testament, we're not assigned to build buildings necessarily, although we need them and praise God for them when we have them. But in a broader spiritual sense, we are commanded by God to build the worldwide body of Christ. Can anyone say amen? All nations, nationalities, cultures, you name it, it's a worldwide singular body. Every human being is called a living stone as part of that body, okay? There's denominational wars that people fight when really you need to look past all of that and see the whole thing from God's viewpoint. There's one body. Now, our job is to go build this thing in the name of Jesus. We are in the construction business. When you got saved, you were given an assignment, and that assignment is to find your lane and run your race and help God build the kingdom, wherever that may be. Might be in Alma, might be in the Philippines, might be in Africa, might be across the street. But the point is, we're all in the construction business. Amen. Whether you know this or not, you are. And you need to be strong to finish whatever the assignment is that you've been given by the Holy Ghost. Strength is needed. There is a spiritual principle that transcends the covenants, the old covenant to the new, and even transcends the natural world that we live in here to the spirit world that we're going to. And that is basically this. The strongest always prevail over the weaker. This is not rocket science, okay? The stronger always prevail over the weaker, Spiritually speaking, or naturally speaking, it's the same, okay? And it transcends the covenants. It was the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New, okay? The stronger you are, the more equipped you are. The weaker you are, the more you can be pushed around by enemies who are stronger than you. It's just a matter of strength, okay? Now, as a man is, so is his strength. And we are told to be strong to do something for the Lord. So we need to understand who we are so can, we can be as strong as we need to be, to be a player and not just a spectator. Anybody want to be a player? You know, you stand before the Lord someday and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Anybody want to hear that? There's a lot of Christians that aren't going to hear that. They're going to hear, well, what happened to you? Where'd you disappear to? Got saved in 1965 and you disappeared for 50 years, you know. Well, Jesus, I love you. I know you do, but what did you do in my name? What did you accomplish in my name? Show me the record of your life besides just the fact that you planted a nice bed of roses in the front of your house or, you know, uh, got a nice job and was living in a nice house and had a nice car to drive. Show me the things you did in my name that have spiritual significance and eternal impact. I want to be able to stand there and give an account that's pleasing to the Lord. Does anybody else want to be in a position like that? I don't need to hear, you know, well, what happened to you? I want my life to count. And in order for my life to count and to be an impact player, not just a Sunday morning spectator or a Sunday morning critic of someone else's service, what I want to do is I want to be out there on the front lines making headway for the Lord, turning the world upside down in the name of Jesus the way the people in the book of Acts did. Amen? Now, with that in mind, let's go to Luke chapter 11, and we'll spend the rest of our time there in that particular book. Luke 11 and... Verse 14 is where we will begin, okay? Luke 11 and verse number 14. This is a story that we find in the Bible, okay? A story about Jesus in operation. Now, before we begin to read this story, 
in the book of John, in the last chapter of John, John chapter 21, John makes a statement and he says, if we tried to chronicle all the miracles that Jesus did in three and a half years of public ministry, the books of the world could not contain them all. Meaning to say there were multitudes of miracles we don't know anything about because we don't know what they were. Because they're not recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So we don't know what they were. If we tried to chronicle every miracle that he did, the books of the world, John said, could not contain them all. So Jesus was actively involved every day, 24-7, with the business of miraculously changing lives, blind eyes opening, crippled people walking, demons being cast out, whatever, okay? But the stories that we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John then therefore become hand-selected testimonies that the Holy Spirit picked out of all of those miracles for specific purposes. Would you not agree that he, he picked them? And there's reasons for this, okay? He didn't just pick these stories because he needed to fill up space in these Gospels here. He picked these stories for particular reasons so that the reader can see things from each hand-selected testimony that he picked out and inspired Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to write them. So there's a reason why this story's in here, and let's find out why as we read it. We'll begin with the 14th verse, okay? John chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 11 and verse number 14. He was casting out a demon that he would be Jesus, and it was mute. And so it was that when the demon had gone out, the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. Some of them said, well, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Verse 16, others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Verse 20, but... If I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now he's not done. Verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all of his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. He's not done. Verse 24, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now, what does that have to do with us today? A lot. A lot. We could break it down into a, a number of subsections here today and be here for the rest of the day, but for the sake of time, we're going to break it down into three distinct groups, verses 14 through 26, three distinct, three distinct segments to the story that you and I need to understand in the lives we live today, in the end times of the age of grace and whatever else we call this age we're living in now, the age of grace, dispensation of grace, and so on and so forth. Anyway, Verse 14 to verse 16, that is Jesus in operation. That's ministry. That's outreach. This is what he was doing. This is what we're supposed to be doing. He was setting a person free who could not set himself free. 
The man was possessed with a mute spirit, and because he was possessed, he could not talk, and he could not set himself free. So Jesus comes along and casts the spirit out. Now, in the Greek, the word cast means to forcibly throw out or, you know, to evict like that. We're not talking about asking politely. We're not talking about suggestions here. We're not talking about talking to the evil spirit to say, if you don't mind, would you please vacate the premises? No, 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 no. This is Jesus taking the the spirit with the authority he's got from God and throwing him out of that human being and setting that person, that poor soul free, who could not set himself free. So that's ministry. This is what we're doing down here. In any way, shape, fashion, or form, we are charged by God to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And if we're not doing this, we're wasting God's time and our time. And churches are full of people who are just sitting there with all this potential to set at liberty them that are bruised all around them, and they're not doing anything with the power they've got because they don't know some things about what they can do with that power. So... We're supposed to be out there doing the Father's business, okay? Whatever that means, you know, it's not necessarily casting out evil spirits everywhere you turn, but there's people hurting out there that need help and don't know where to go. And they need to find a church like this, do they not? Okay, so we're supposed to be busy about the Father's business, just like Jesus was. He said, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works shall you do. All of these statements indicate that we're supposed to be actively involved in the business of winning souls. All right, then comes the criticism. When you start doing what he's doing here, notice people start criticizing. Well, he casts out demons by Beelzebub. Beelzebub is another name for Satan. So they're saying, well, you're casting out demons because you're the ruler of the demons, you yourself. And he's incurring this criticism because he's reaching out to set people free. So in response to the criticism, he starts teaching them about kingdoms. He says, listen, all you critics, Verse 17, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? So he's talking about the kingdom of the devil, but he goes on. He says in verse 19, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he's comparing two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. He's comparing the two. And he's saying in verse number 17, every kingdom divided falls, or we may say becomes ineffective or of none effect, okay? Every kingdom, that includes God's kingdom. If every means every, that includes every kingdom, and God's kingdom is a part of the every. Every kingdom divided against itself falls, is what Jesus said. Now, you need to understand, inside the body of Christ, not outside, inside the body of Christ, we've got two groups of people. We've got the educated and the uneducated. They're all wonderful people. We're not dissing anybody. We're not saying I'm better than you, you're better than me. None of that's going on here. They're simply two groups of people. One have a a realm of understanding about these things we're talking about, and the other group doesn't. And as long as the house is divided like this, we struggle and, and limp along for the Lord, not realizing that we have the power to change cities, states, countries, lives, not with a fancy message, but with the power of God that confirms the fancy message that the Bible tells us we're supposed to be manifesting continuously as we move forth in the name of Jesus. But see, half the group doesn't understand any of this. 
So they're going to actually criticize the ones that are doing things because they don't know any better. It's just human nature. Point being, he goes on, he says, listen, not only are there two kingdoms involved here, and not only do they have to be united in order to be effective, but also he goes on in verse 21 to say, listen, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace until a stronger man shows up. And then the stronger man takes from the strong man anything he wants, divides his spoils and so forth, because why? He's stronger. That's why. Like I said, this is not rocket science. The the stronger always prevail over the weaker. In the context of the story, how many understand it's important to read verses in context? If you don't, you're going to end up in error pretty quickly. Okay, you can't pull statements out and make them say things they're not supposed to say. If you don't read it in context, you're going to misunderstand the application. So in the context of the story where Jesus just set that man free and now he's incurring the criticism because of it, and now he's helping the the critics understand what's actually going on, he's not only talking about two kingdoms now, now he's talking about two different types of people. Using these two types of people to illustrate who's involved in the different kingdoms the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The strong man in the story is the devil. He's the strong man. And he binds, notice, the strong man guards his own palace and keeps his goods in peace. Who would that be? Those would be the poor souls that can't set themselves free. They don't know how to. They haven't been taught to. They don't know the information that they've been given or whatever the case may be. And they're bound in the prison cell of the enemy and they can't get out. They want to, but they don't know how. So their ignorance keeps them bound. Either they're, unbelie- uh, they're, either they're, uh, they're not saved and they need to get saved, or they're saved and they don't know who they are in Christ. Either way, okay? That way, the strong man just keeps them bound, either bound in sickness or sickness and disease or mental confusion or whatever, okay? They're bound. They, they want to be set free, but they can't until the stronger man shows up. And the stronger man, according to Jesus, takes from the strong man, takes Notice, doesn't ask for permission, takes. He just goes in there and takes what he wants. Why? Because he can. Because he's stronger. And the strong man can't stop him. Why? Because he's not strong enough to stop him. He'd like to stop him, but he can't. Because he'd like to hold on to his palace, and he'd like to hold on to his goods, meaning the people that he's bound and imprisoned, but he can't hold on to them because the stronger man comes along and kicks open the jail cell and says, come on out, you're free in the name of Jesus and they walk on out, and they're set free in Jesus' name. And the strong man stands there and says, well, I don't want that to happen. Well, you can't do anything about it, buddy, because I'm stronger than you are. When I went to school, elementary school, St. Clair's Elementary School, Mayfield Heights, Ohio, suburb of Cleveland, home of the Browns. Wow. Zero and 10 and working on a zero and 16 season. Praise the Lord. Pray for me. But the point is, it was a Catholic school, you know, so anyway, we had lay teachers and we had nuns, you know, a mix of the two, and uh, every day at 12 o'clock we had lunch, 12 to 12.20, we sat there and had our lunch, you know, lunch box, mom packs things and we take it to school, and then from 12.20 to 1 o'clock we had recess, so they let us out into the playground, which was also the parking lot uh, for Sunday morning mass, you know, they, it, the, the area doubled as a recess area for the kids during the week. And so we'd, we'd, we'd run around and play like kids do, running off all the steam between, you know, 12, 20, and 1 o'clock. Then they'd bring us back into class for a couple more uh, class sessions and then send us home at about 3 p.m. 
It was supposed to be a happy time where kids just run and jump and play and all of that. For me, this was not a happy time. This was a time of terror because in my class, there was one particular student. His name was Ian. I never will. I don't remember his last name, but I remember his first name. Ian should have been in the eighth grade, but he was in, still in the fifth grade. Has anybody ever been in a class with people like this? I don't know what Ian's problem was academically, but whatever it was, I mean, he was an eighth grader in a fifth grader's class, and he knew it and we knew it. And so he spent the entire recess beating up kids like me because he was bigger than we were. He knew it and we knew it. So instead of running and jumping and playing with my friends, we spent our recess hiding behind the bushes, hoping that Ian didn't find us and beat us up for 40 minutes. Most of the time I was uh, successful to escape the, uh, the onslaught, but every so often he did catch me and beat me up for 40 minutes. And the point is he could do it and he knew it and we knew it because he was stronger than we were. There it is. Nothing we could do about it. He just, he'd grab us and throw us on the ground and jump on top and start beating us up. Okay? Point is, for us today, we should be the bull, we should be the schoolyard bully. We should be the one pushing the devil around. We should be the one tormenting the tormentor. We should be the one kicking open the jail cell and setting the captives free. That's what we should be doing. That is not what most of us are doing, but that's what we should be doing. Because we, when you got saved, you not only became strong, you became stronger than the enemy. You're the strong man in the story. You know, in Mark chapter 5, when the Looney Tunes from Gadara, the madman, the, the crazy guy that was in the, t- you know, the, the graveyard cutting himself and ripping the chains apart and so forth, when he saw Jesus, when the demons in him saw Jesus, they ran to Jesus and fell at his feet crying out, we know who you are, we know who you are, you're the Son of God, and blah, blah, blah. Have you come to torment us before the time was the question. Go back and read it, Matthew's Gospel. Have you come to torment us? The answer is yes. I sure have. Absolutely. Instead of you tormenting me, I'm going to torment you. And this is what it's all about down here. So, he's not done. Look at verse 23. He makes this off-the-wall statement. Remember, read verses in context. This is not just some strange statement that was inserted because we needed space to be filled so the Holy Spirit just stuck something in there. No, no, no. Jesus was not a schizophrenic teacher. He doesn't jump around from topic to topic. He's still talking about this business of stronger men setting people free because the strong man can't stop it, just like I did when I cast that spirit out a few minutes ago from the guy that couldn't talk, okay? That's the whole miracle that set up this whole teaching here. So, verse 23, he who is not with me is against me. What's there, where's that coming from? And he who is not gathering with me scatters. Now, what's that mean? In the light of the context. Okay, once again, the two groups inside the kingdom, the ones who know who they are and the ones who don't. Okay, basically he's saying, listen, if you're in the group that does know who you are, you are the problem that never goes away. You're the counseling session that just keeps coming back around. You're the beloved brother or sister that keeps coming in and talking about the same things over and over, the same issues year after year, problem after problem. You're the one we're carrying along on our back. You know, listen, if you're newly born again and you're just learning about these things for the first couple years, we understand we got your back, we'll cover you, we'll take care of you. But at some point along life's way, the Christian needs to get the binky out of their mouth Put the helmet on, pick up the weapon, learn how to engage the enemy and engage him on the front lines and start making an impact for the Lord instead of being the counseling session that never goes away. 
And this is basically what he's saying. Listen, if you're not gathering with me, you're scattering. If I may paraphrase, he's saying, listen, if you don't know who you are, then you are a spiritual liability. You're not an asset. You're a liability. You're someone we've got to drag along, someone we've got to carry along, the complainers, the mumblers, the grumblers. Are they saved? Yeah. Are they going to heaven? Yeah. But are they of any help down here? The answer is no, they're not a help. They're a hindrance. They're not gathering. They're scattering. They're not working with us. They're actually working against us. That's what he's telling us here. I'd like to be in the group that's working with Jesus. Anybody else interested? I'd like to be somebody he can depend on in the clutch. Praise the Lord. Because of verses 24, 25, and 26. Because here's the third part of the story. If you don't get your act together, the enemy comes back around. He says, listen, man, when that unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places looking for rest. He's seeking rest, and he doesn't find any. So he says to himself, you know what? I'm going to come back to the house from which I got thrown out, and I'm going to check it out. And when he goes back to see how it looks... The Bible calls it swept, a house swept and put in order, meaning to say he's been cleaned up, you know, he was on drugs, he's not on drugs anymore, you know, he was an alcoholic, but now he's not drinking anymore, he was a womanizer, but he's clean, he's got his act together, his house is swept and put in order, but the front door's open. He never took the time to learn who he was, he never took the time to find out what he could be in Christ, and so because of these things, he's got all this swept and put in order, but the front door is wide open, he's got no defenses, his walls are down, and the enemy goes right back in there. Now this doesn't happen in the matter of minutes, it happens over time, weeks, months, and years. Okay, people who get set free. I've seen it, man. I've been traveling for 36 years, and many times I go to churches like yours on multiple occasions over the course of years and years of time. And you see people, I've seen people get set free in the 1980s, get their lives turned all back around for God. They're excited for the Lord. They're wearing a Rapture Airlines t-shirt, you know, and they got antennas, you know, nine translations on the front row, can't wait to hear about God, you know, and they're at the church 15 minutes before the doors open because they just, they got their lives turned around. They're turned out to turned on the Jesus, you know, front row. I come back three years later on the fourth row. I come back 10 years later, they're on the ninth row. I come back 15 years later, they ain't there no more. Front row, fourth row, seventh row, ninth row, back row, out the door they go over the course of 10, 15, 20 years. You know, listen, God's not the only one that's got time to work with in your life. So does the devil. And if you don't know this, you can be set free, but you can lose it if you don't understand who you are, because he's going to come back around to check things out to see if he can get back in. I'd like to think, I've been at this now for 36 years. Let me tell you some things about who was hot and going for God in the 1980s, who isn't around anymore. Who was hot for God in the 1990s that isn't around anymore. You know, you, you're in this thing long enough, you, you see things. You see people rise like shooting stars on the covers of the Charisma Today type magazines, and they're doing great things, and they've got the mega churches, and they've got all the blah, 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 and then, you know, 15, 20 years later, where are they now? I'm going to finish the race I started to run a long, long time ago. How about you? I want to finish the race, and I want to cross that finish line stronger at the end than when I started. I don't need to be roped across the finish line from 50 yards out by the mercy of God who's got to pull me across because I'm so confused I don't know which way is up. I want to be somebody who's stretching for the tape, stronger at the end than I was at the beginning. That's why I want to finish running this race. Amen? 
So listen, you, maybe you don't see yourself this way, but this is how God sees you. You're the stronger man. You're the stronger woman of God. You were uh, christened, shall I say, the way Pastor Larry, you know, like what are, Queen Victoria, you know, she became the queen and everything changed. When you got saved, everything changed. Live in the light of it. That's all God wants you to do. Just live in the light of what happened to you when you accepted Jesus. The Holy Spirit took up residence inside of you, okay? Now you have the power, you have the authority to gather instead of scatter, to, to work with instead of working against the Holy Spirit. Let's be people who know who we are, and let's embrace the possibilities for these last days. As Pastor Larry said a few minutes ago, don't be afraid of the future. For us, the future is bright. And for us, the future is wonderful. This is a great time to represent Jesus. Why? Because the, pro the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. No matter what goes on around us, the promises of God are still yes and amen for the body of Christ. And it doesn't matter if, you know, listen. It doesn't matter if a tube of toothpaste costs $19.99. God will give you the money to buy the tube of toothpaste. He is not bound by what goes on down here. He's only bound by his word, and his word is final authority in this life. And if you embrace it and believe it and walk in the light of it, no demon can stop you, no demon can hinder you, nobody can shut you down or slow you down because you know who you are in Christ, and at any time, anywhere, you can set people free because you can. You become the Ian on the playground. You become the one running around beating up all the others because you can. Amen. <laughs> you know. Praise the Lord. I'm reminded of a, a witch doctor that tried to disrupt a crusade once in the Philippines. This was early on, about two or three years into it. We went to a city called General Santos and had an outdoor crusade, and it was on a stage, an elevated stage like this, a little bit higher, but you know, not, not much higher. You know, there are some steps that you walked up on a platform. This was in a public park, and... Um, there was a praise and worship section to the service where we had some singers and some musicians to play and draw the crowd, which is what they do. And so I was standing, actually sitting back over here somewhere, you know, reviewing my notes and praying quietly to myself, getting ready to stand up and preach. And there was about a crowd of uh, 400 people, that would be my guess, 350 to 400. And they're all standing there in the park, you know, trees and all of this. And so uh, the singers got done singing and playing, and so they all got off the stage and left the microphones temporarily unoccupied for a minute. And so, uh, you know, I got my head down looking at the Bible reading. This witch doctor, actually it was a young lady, about 22-ish, 22, 23, like that, runs up on the stage, grabs a microphone, and starts putting spells on people. I'm not kidding. She's putting spells on people. And, I mean, you know, a lot of these people are sick. That's why they're there. They want to get healed. They're sick. She's putting spells on people. And this was early on in the ministry. I didn't have my own group, my own team that I trained. I didn't have them with me. I had volunteers from the local churches that were helping me. So they were good people trying their best to help, but they didn't know how to deal with this. No one had taught them how. Okay? So they're standing there clueless. They're looking at me like, what are we supposed to do? Well, she's casting spells on people and calling down rain from the sky uh, to disrupt the service, wreck it as much as she can, and disrupt the services. That's what she's there to do. So, you know, you talk about these things to people like the American portion of the body of Christ, and a lot of people stare at you like you just got off the bus from Mars. But, you know, this stuff is real. I mean, you go to the third world and you get out away from, you know, places like this, and this is what you deal with. And so the Lord spoke to me, you know, and said, 
deal with this now. You know, this is not the time to go behind the statue and pray for 45 minutes in tongues, waiting for some guidance from God. You better do something now or your meeting is over and your reputation is finished because you've got that big banner back there. You know, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Healing crusade, come and be blessed. And here's this lady putting spells on people. You know, listen, the devil will push you as far as he thinks he can go until you push back. Does anyone understand that? He'll push you until you push back. Because he'll, you know, until you do, he'll just keep pushing. So I walked up behind her and grabbed her by the, you know, her shoulders here and spun her around so she's facing me. You know, we're about this close. And she's facing me. She's got the microphone. I take the microphone out of her hand, toss it to somebody over on the side, toss the microphone. It was a handheld deal. It was a cord, I think, at that time. And uh, took it out of her hand and, and tossed it. Then I picked her up by the front of her blouse, lifted her up off the ground, and threw her off the stage. She landed in a cloud of dust, you know, the little whimper and whelp, and ran off. Someone might say, well, that wasn't very spiritual. You're right. It wasn't at all. But it was extremely effective. We never saw old honey buns again for the rest of the crusade. You know, you do what you got to do. We're not out there to win friends and influence people and stroke people. We're out there to do a job for God. And if the devil tries to push, we push back. Point is, I want you to be left with the truth today that you, when you got saved, became the stronger man or the stronger woman, and you are set by God into a place where you're supposed to do something meaningful for the Lord in your areas of assignment. Whatever it may be, be strong and do it. Still applies to you like it does to me or anyone else out there claiming to be Christian. Can anyone say amen? Yeah.